If you're looking to celebrate the holiday season in a meaningful way, consider revisiting the story of the first Christmas. In the newest edition of his book called Why the Nativity, Dr. David Jeremiah looks in close detail at the people and events surrounding that special day. The book and brand new docudrama are yours when you support Turning Point this month with a gift of $60 or more. If you give $100 or more, you'll also receive the correlating CD album and study guide. Donate today at davidjeremiah.ca. The most active battleground isn't on any military map. It's inside of you every day. As your old nature wages war with your new nature in Christ. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah sheds light on that conflict and how you can enlist God's help to resolve it through the quality of biblical self-control. From a life beyond amazing, here's David to introduce his message, A Life of Self-Discipline. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm reminded by today's topic of a time in the past when I was teaching a seminar with a friend of mine. We were doing these seminars across the country in hotels, and one of my assignments was to teach a session on time management. I remember uh, doing that, uh, and the first time becoming aware of the fact that there is no such thing as time management, because time goes on whether we manage it or not. And I felt to myself, the best way to describe what I'm talking about is self-management, self-discipline. But my partner said, if you advertise that, nobody will come to your session. So we kept calling it time management, but I knew in my own heart it was really self-discipline. It was self-management, which is one of the big challenges for all of us. And I don't have to bring up all of the illustrations. So today, and again on Monday... We're going to talk about what it means to be self-disciplined and how the Bible speaks of that in such an important way. I hope you'll be with us as we come to the end of this series, A Life Beyond Amazing. Don't forget the resource for the month of November is the book, Why the Nativity, a 176-page softcover book answering 25 questions about Christmas. Including in the book are scenes from behind the scenes, pictures from the docudrama, Why the Nativity. This book is yours for a gift of any amount to Turning Point. When you ask for this resource, we'll send it to you right away. And yesterday I told you that uh, Why the Nativity docudrama is now being released. To find out where you can see it, where you can watch it, go to whythenativity.org. There you will begin to see all the places where this is being released around the country and around the world. Okay, let's get started with part one of A Life of Self-Discipline. In his best-selling book, Outliers, one of my favorite secular writers, Malcolm Gladwell, explains how extraordinary people achieve their success. His examples include the Beatles and Bill Gates and star hockey players, successful pilots, and Silicon Valley billionaires. After studying how they reached the pinnacle of their profession, Here is what Gladwell learned. Successful people practice. It is not rocket science. It's just true. They practice. I mean, they practice a lot. In fact, he believes there's a magic number of 10,000 hours of practice that moves you from the rank and file to outranking almost everyone else. Think about it. 
10,000 hours of practice devoted to improving yourself. It sounds overwhelming, almost unreachable. And you have to ask yourself, who in the world would commit to such a thing? But we have already. We have committed to that. We have determined by the grace of God to embark on a journey to a new life. And each step of that journey where we repeat the right things, we are building the habits and the character into our life that God envisioned for us to experience. In Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit, he lists self-control last. The placement is no mistake. By occupying this final position, self-discipline assumes a place of strategic importance. Self-discipline is the summation of the previous eight qualities that the Spirit of God produces. The work of the Spirit reaches its consummation in self-discipline. This virtue makes it possible for us to realize all of the other virtues in this list. Someone has said that self-discipline is doing what's right when you feel like doing what's wrong. It's knowing you can but deciding you won't. It's not eating all the popcorn before the movie starts. (laughs) My favorite description of this character trait is this one. The ability to maintain progress toward a goal even when you're not in the mood. Don't feel like making the effort. Would momentarily enjoy something else or find working towards your goal downright unpleasant. It's interesting to me as a student of the scripture that the New Testament word for this word discipline is the same word that is used to describe government. It really means governing. Self-discipline means to govern, to govern yourself. It's from this word that we get the word democracy, but from the Greek word itself, the whole issue of self-discipline is the idea of staying in control of yourself. And as we look in the Bible, we see many people who lived like this, most of all the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived under absolute total control at all times. True self-control, as we study this, is a gift from God. And I like to remember that. I kind of just really recently discovered this because, as you know, I'm like all of you. There are times when I know I should be more self-disciplined, and I argue with myself sometimes about it. And then I remember what I just learned, that I have all the self-discipline that I will ever need. God gave it to me as part of my gift as a Christian. The problem is I have the gift, and now it's my responsibility to do something with it. You say, well, I just don't have self-control. If you're a Christian, that's a lie. You have all the self-control you will ever need. God gave it to you. It's in the package that you got as a Christian. But if you don't take it and use it, then it's useless to you. So you see, self-control is a gift from above. It's produced in us by the Holy Spirit, but we need to note that self-control is not a gift we receive passively, but it's one we must receive actively. We are not the source, but we are involved, and we open the gift, and we live the gift, and we receive the grace of self-control, and we take it all the way in, and then we let it all the way out through the actual exercise of the gift itself. So men and women, we know this. Every day we make choices about the direction of our lives. 
We make those choices. And frankly, when what we want to do lines up with what we should do, I mean, that's really great. That's a wonderful moment. But honestly, a lot of the time, we simply don't feel like doing what we know is best for us. And this is where self-discipline kicks in and carries us up the hill. Let me talk with you for just a moment about the battle for a disciplined life. At the heart of self-discipline is this reality that in each of us, if we're followers of Christ, we have two natures. When we were born, we were born with one. We have one nature until we become a Christian. And when we become a Christian, we get God's nature. He gives us his nature. But the old nature doesn't go away. So now you're conflicted as a believer. And what happens is inside of you, this war is going on. It's almost like a civil war. Someone once said, you almost swear you were a split personality. So Galatians puts it this way. Galatians says, for the flesh, which is the old nature, lusts against the spirit, which is the new nature, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. Now listen to this. So that you do not do the things that you wish. How many of you can identify with that? There's so many times we want to do the right thing. We know the right thing. We're all generated up to do it, and then we don't do it. We've all been there, and we've done that. Probably a lot of us have done it this week more than once. <laughs> and if we don't understand, you know, a lot of Christians who don't get taught the Scripture don't understand this issue of the two natures. And if you don't understand that, you're going to live in a constant and irretrievable state of defeat. But I have good news for you. You don't have to live that way. And you can learn self-discipline. And your new nature can take control of your life. And here's the secret to it in a bit of poetry that I've shared with you more than once. Here's what it says. Two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul. The one is blessed. The one I love. The one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. There is more wisdom in those four lines of poetry than just about any theological construct I could recommend. If you want to start winning the battle within, you've got to start thinking about your spiritual diet. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to be proactive about that in the world in which we live because there's nothing out there that naturally feeds the spirit. You got to go get it. You got to prepare it. You got to sit down and ingest it or it just never happens. On the other hand, isn't it true that the old nature just finds food everywhere because it's all out there. Everywhere you go, there's stuff wanting to jam into your spirit, information and attitudes and, well, just habits that are out to destroy you. The devil loves your old nature. He will do everything he can to keep it alive. But the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit has come. Give us victory in our hearts. And we live in such an age that if we don't understand this, we're going to just be so frustrated all the time. I read recently that we are living in an age where it's like a giant all-you-can-eat buffet, one that offers more calories, more credit, more sex, more intoxicants, and just about anything else we can take to excess with more possibilities for pleasure, now watch this, and fewer rules and constraints than ever before. That's the culture in which we live. More possibilities 
for pleasure and fewer restraints than ever before. More temptations, fewer rules. No wonder we find this virtue so challenging to master. So let's just be honest with ourselves that self-discipline is important because we're in a war. It's a spiritual war. It's an inward war. It's a war between the old nature and the new nature. I want to talk with you secondly about the blessings of the disciplined life. This battle that we're talking about today, this venture that we're about to enter into is worth it because the blessings are so great. We mature in life and faith and we increasingly experience many of the self-disciplined blessings. Think about what commonly derails all of us. How do we get off track? Impulsiveness, procrastination, impatience, anger. Without self-control, these things take over our lives. That's why sometimes you meet somebody, you say, well, that person is a Christian, but they're just angry all the time. I hope you don't live with that person. But listen to me. You can be a Christian and have those things happen in your life. If you allow the old nature to continue to thrive within your spirit as a believer, it will be almost impossible to tell whether you're a Christian or not. I've heard over the years as a pastor, because of relationships we have with other organizations and all of the people that we do outsourcing with, that a lot of folks in the world today don't want to deal with Christians because they think they're mean-spirited. Sometimes they're haughty and holier than thou. That isn't from God. That's from the old nature. And when we allow that to thrive, it creates all kinds of problems for us. The Bible tells us that when we live under the control of the Holy Spirit, everything good happens. In fact, in Christianity Today, there was an article called The Science of Sinning Less. It was written by Bradley Wright and David Caron. And here's what they said. They said people with self-control live longer, are happier, get better grades, are less depressed, are more physically active, have lower resting heart rates, have less alcohol abuse, have more stable emotions, are more helpful to others, get better jobs, earn more money, have better marriages, are more faithful in marriage, and sleep better every night. Whoa. That sounds like a commercial. A commercial for self-discipline. How about that? So if it's that good, we should ask ourselves, how do we manage to cause this virtue that God has given to us to flourish? How do we unpackage this gift and make it really go to work in our lives so that it's everything God intended it to be? And I'm just going to give you real quickly seven strategies that I've discovered as I've been studying this. They're simple, but they're also profound. And if you will listen to them, they will change the way you look at life. Here's the first one. Embrace your dissatisfaction. Now that sounds like a counterintuitive thing to say. But let me explain to you what I mean. In a letter that Paul wrote just before his death, he confessed to his friends in Philippi that he did not consider himself to have achieved the goal that he set for following Christ. I want you to read these verses with me. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also lay hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Listen to what Paul is saying. This book, the book of Philippians, where this is written, the people to whom it is written, is one of the latter books of Paul's writing career. He was at the zenith of his career, and yet he realized he had not yet reached the high water mark of his calling. Think with me about this. He had permeated major cities with the gospel. He had founded churches that continued to flourish. He had written major doctrinal letters that even today astound the scholars. But he was not satisfied with himself. The more he accomplished, the more he saw that needed to be accomplished in his own life. How could the greatest man who ever walked on this earth apart from Jesus Christ come to the end of his life and admit being dissatisfied with his spiritual progress? Listen to me, that was the secret of Paul. Paul had an incurable hunger and thirst for God so that no matter where he was, he hungered and thirsted for more. It was that which drove him on to the greatness that we observe as we read about him in the scripture. And when you couple that with what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, listen to what Jesus said. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, I'm so glad he didn't say, blessed are those who are righteous. Then most of us wouldn't be blessed. But I remember the first time I really understood the meaning of that verse to my own life. I was in a kind of spiritual funk. I was down. I felt like I wasn't making any progress. I wanted it to be better, but it wasn't. And then I discovered that hunger and thirst for more of God and his presence in my life was not a bad thing. It was a good thing. In fact, it was not only a good thing, it was a blessed thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. God is honored when we, his children, refuse to be complacent about where we are. So if you're one of those like me who periodically thinks to yourself, boy, I wish I was further down the road spiritually than I am. Seems to me I should be doing better or I should be growing faster or or whatever. Don't chastise yourself. Pat yourself on the back. Encourage yourself. Applaud yourself because down within your heart is this hunger and thirst for righteousness. I truly believe that the first step we take toward a life beyond amazing is realizing that we're not there yet. (laughs) More than one motivational speaker that I've listened to over the years has expressed some version of this. Here's one that I remember. Until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change, nothing happens. We simply maintain the status quo And we convince ourselves that playing it safe is safe. If we're not unhappy and dissatisfied with how much and what kind of love, joy, and peace we have in our lives, we'll never have any more. If we're not convicted that we fall short in generosity and compassion, we'll stay the same. And if we think we're humble and resilient when we're not, we fool ourselves and a life beyond amazing for us is just a nice, cute title to a new book. So embrace your dissatisfaction. Don't let it depress or discourage you. Remind yourself that the more you want a better life, the more power and fuel you will have to achieve it. And I can't help but put in this little thought that I learned some years ago, and it goes like this. We all have about as much of God as we really want. Embrace your dissatisfaction. Here's the second one. 
Beware of good intentions. Looking back over my life, I remember when uh, I would get a spiritual high from reading about somebody else's victory. Have you ever done that? It's called vicarious blessing, and it's a really dangerous thing. It can give you the idea that you're doing something when you're not. The time-worn statement that the road to hell is paved with good intentions perfectly summarizes what I'm trying to say. Don't ever let yourself get into this habit where you read books about other people who have been self-disciplined and you read them and you enjoy them so much and they get in your spirit and all of a sudden you close the book and you've got the impression that it was you. And you're just as undisciplined as you were before you started reading the book. Some years ago I was reading a commentary by William Barclay And just out of nowhere, this story popped up in this commentary on the book of Matthew. It's a story about a guy that you all have heard about. His name is Samuel Taylor Coleridge, one of the world's most famous poets. And if you still haven't pegged him, he is the author of the poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. That's a kickback to your English literature classes of past days. But I want you to read what I read about this man that I did not know. Coleridge is the supreme tragedy of undiscipline. Never did so great a mind produce so little. He left Cambridge University to join the army, and he left the army because in spite of all of his erudition, he could not rub down a horse. He returned to Oxford and left without a degree. He began a paper called The Watchman, and it lived for 10 issues and then died. It has been said of him, he lost himself in the visions of work to be done that always remained to be done. Coolidge had every poetic gift but the one, the gift of sustained and concentrated effort. In his head and in his mind, he had all kinds of books, as he said himself, completed, save for transcription. (laughs) I am on the eve of sending to the press two octavo volumes, he said. But the books were never composed outside of his mind because he would not face the discipline of sitting down to write them out. No one ever reached any eminence and no one having reached it ever maintained it without some discipline to do it and not just think about it, not just have good intentions, not just say someday I'm gonna get involved in this. You know, the pastor preached a good message today. I ought to really get involved in this. I think I'm gonna give this a thought And by the time you come next week, it's already been erased and you're on to your next little mental journey. Beware of good intentions. Good intentions won't get you anywhere. They may give you the thought that you're on the journey, but you're not. And then let me give you the third one, which might be a little convicting, but hang in. I will make it better. Begin working out. I know you didn't come to church to hear that. But you don't understand what I mean. I'm not talking about going to 24 Fitness or whatever it is around here. I'm talking about something totally different. When Paul wrote to young Timothy to instruct him in his Christian growth, here's what he said to him. At the tail end of a verse in 1 Timothy 4 is this nugget. Train yourself to be godly. That's what it says. Train yourself to be godly. So that pretty much uh, removes all the excuses, doesn't it? It means that if we're not that way, it's because we're not doing what we need to do to become that way. None of us wants to be ungodly, that's for sure. We want to be godly, but what Paul is telling Timothy, he's speaking to us. This is a discipline. 
uh, we we need to work out spiritually just as we work out physically. Get in the spiritual gymnasium, which I think is called the church, and ask God to help you develop um, spiritual muscles that will enable you to face the challenges that life inevitably brings. We'll have some more about this on Monday. I hope you'll be with us for part two of A Life of Self-Discipline. And then over the weekend, uh, the radio series, I'll be talking once again about A Life of Integrity. You can find us on television anywhere in the United States. And uh, you can find out where we are in your community, if you haven't found us yet, by going to our website. And there's a station tracker there. Uh, Just hit that button. and It'll ask for some information. It'll show you where we are in your area on television. And uh, then most of all, friends, with all of this information about the weekend, don't forget to go to church. Um, I think people are starting to come back, and, and, and we're seeing that here in our church, uh, little by little, folks who have been very cautious about coming to church are coming back to church. But more than ever before, we need to be together as God's people and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, according to Hebrews. So make it a priority. Let this be your first Sunday if you haven't gone back yet. And uh, ask God to really bless you because you're in the house of God with his people. We'll see you on Monday. I hope you'll join us then right here on this good station. I'm David Jeremiah. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, A Life Beyond Amazing, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Fill your Christmas with meaning and joy by asking for your copy of David's book and new docudrama DVD, Why the Nativity? Sure to become a Christmas classic. Each is available for your gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions. Available in your choice of cover options. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue the series, A Life Beyond Amazing, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. All we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God, but we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. The father of the Methodist church movement was the Englishman John Wesley. When he was asked why the movement was so successful, he answered, Our people die well. 
that seems like an odd way to commend a movement dedicated to sharing new life to say that its members die well. On the other hand, it is the ultimate commendation. It has often been said that the only people who truly know how to live are those who have learned how to die. Jesus said that whosoever believes in him will live even if he dies. And today is the day to believe. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's way to live and die well on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.